Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Hello everybody, my name is Rob Dalrymple. I want to welcome you to my podcast in the book of Revelation. In this series of podcasts, we're going to look at the book of Revelation from chapters 1 through 22. What did John say? How would John's readers have understood what he said? And what does it mean for us today? After we survey the 22 chapters in the book of Revelation, we'll then record some more podcasts that will examine some of the more popular topics. What about the beast and the Antichrist and the rapture and some of the more popular topics? For those of you who are interested, I encourage you to get a copy of my book, Follow the Lamb. It's a guide on how to read, understand, and apply the book of Revelation. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast by downloading the Podbean app on your smartphone and following the Determined Truth podcast. For now, I hope you sit back and enjoy our study of the book of Revelation. Today's study takes us to Revelation chapter 18. In Revelation 18, we see what actually John was promised, John was told he was going to see in chapter 17. In chapter 17, he was told in the beginning that he was going to see the, the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. But chapter 17 didn't describe any judgment. It just described the harlot and her beauty and adornment and how she was drunk with the blood of the saints. It's not until chapter 18 that we find the judgment of the great harlot. Chapter 18, verse 1 says, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations had drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth had committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth had become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you may not participate in her sins, that you may not receive of her plagues, for her sins have piled as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back, even as she has paid. Give back to her double according to her deeds. And the cup in which she has mixed, mixed twice as much for her. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she'll be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. Chapter 18 then begins with this fallen, fallen as Babylon the Great. The description of the destruction of Babylon the Great is based on the lament of the fall of Tyre in the book of Ezekiel, chapters 26 and 27, as well as uh, references in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel. The fall is then predicted in verses 1 through 3, the system that is indulged in this excessive luxury and exploitation of people by which many people became rich is now going to fall. Verse 4 then gives perhaps the most significant warning in the entire book of Revelation. Come out of her, my people. God's people are exhorted to separate from Babylon before her judgment and before they end up suffering with her. After all, God's going to pay her back double according to her deeds. What follows then in Revelation 18, 9 and following is then in the form of a funeral dirge where those who once benefited and prospered from Rome's lavishness and excesses are now lamenting her demise. The first group are the kings of the earth, verse 9. The kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. The second group is the merchants of the earth, verse 11. Merchants of the earth who weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple and silk and scarlet. 
every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. The fruit you have longed for has gone from you and all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning and saying, Woe, woe, the great city, she who is clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. The third group that's going to lament her in her eyes are the shipmasters and passengers. It says in the middle of verse 17, Every past shipmaster and passenger and sailor and as many make their living by the sea, they stood at a distance. And they were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city? They threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning and saying, Woe, woe, the great city, in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she has been laid waste. The people lament her demise, but they lament her demise because of their own economic loss. Uh, the kings of the earth mourn, the merchants of the earth mourn, and the sea captains and sailors mourn because they are the ones who suffer economic loss and economic hardships. John then goes on to list these luxuries of Rome, which are excessive and, and, and abundant, gold and silver, precious stones and pearls. We have indications that women in Rome would only take baths in silver tubs and that generals insisted on eating from silver plates. According to some historians, Julius Caesar gave Servilia a single pearl that cost $18,000. Uses solid gold plates had actually been forbidden by law to, excurb, to, to curb extravagance. These items also include fine linen and purple, silk, and scarlet cloth. We're told that the entire Roman military once dressed himself in silk garments imported from China. Purple dye was extremely expensive. It had to be imported from Phoenicia, and it was extracted from the mollusk shells one drop at a time. Articles included citron wood and articles of ivory and costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble. These items, some of them were imported from North Africa. Seneca once had 300 tables made with ivory feet and marble legs. The list also includes cargoes of cinnamon and spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, and carriages, and the bodies and souls of men and slaves. What's most intriguing about this list is that it appears to be a list in order of a descending order of value. It starts with gold and silver. It ends with fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, and carriage, carriages. But notice that the last item on the list is the bodies and slaves of human lives. Human lives are at the bottom of the list of, of, of items in descending value. Some estimates suggest that there was as many as 60 million slaves throughout the empire. These items and the cargoes of, of wealth and prosperity didn't come uh, without a cost. They came at the cost of human lives. David De Silva notes that the Roman economy included provisions of free grain and oil for the, cities, the, for the city of Rome's 200,000 families. Uh, it was free. It's a perk of living in the capital of the empire. As John De Silva notes that as John watches the cargoes of wine and oil and fine flour and grain streaming towards Rome, he watches the prices of staples like barley and wheat rise in the provinces where those grains are grown. See, Rome purchased these grains very inexpensively at fixed minimum quantities and fixed prices. What this meant was that the residents of the provinces often had to pay inflated prices for the insufficient amounts of grain that were left over. And in times of shortage, they often went without grain. The situation was made worse as local landowners used more and more of their land to produce crops that brought in a better yield per arable acre, 
Market demands made the production of oil and wine far more attractive, often leading to scarcity in the essentials of wheat and barley in the provinces. The book of Revelation, chapter 6, five, chapter six verses 5 and 6, reflects a situation in which the prices of staples are grossly inflated while the production of oil and the wine uh, proceed unabated. Revelation 18, verse 20 then says, But rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. And a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer. And no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Now, chapter 19, verse 1, let me look at that just briefly for a moment. It says, After these things I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. So while the kings of the earth and the merchants of the earth and the shipmasters and passengers and sailors all mourn the destruction of the great harlot because of the economic ruin that comes to them, the faithful rejoice. They rejoice over her destruction. In fact, the faithful rejoice over her destruction because it's the answer to the prayers of the saints back in chapter 6. O Lord, how long until you avenge our blood? And we're told in chapter 19, verse 2, that he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. God has imposed on her the sentence that she opposed on you. She, she imposed death upon you, so God has given death to her. Since Babylon's economic system persecuted Christians and ostracized them from the trade guilds, so now the various artisans will no longer be found in her again. Now, all this raises some significant questions that the modern reader, the contemporary reader of the book of Revelation, needs to grapple with. Babylon is certainly more than Rome. Uh, it, it, she, it, it's described as a city sitting on ten hills and all that. And, and there's much reason to believe that Babylon is Rome. But we've also noticed that Babylon's a harlot. And the harlot describes God's people in the Old Testament world that had committed idolatry and fallen after other gods. And perhaps it's, a, it's the church going astray. After all, John warns the church, come out of her, my people, that you will not participate in her sins, that you will not receive of her plagues. So it's the city in the world where Christians dwell as they journey to the, to the new promised land, the new Jerusalem. Uh, Resegue says it's the place of exile and alienation for Christians. But while we're there in the middle of Rome, dwelling in the city of Rome as, 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 as aliens, we have to be careful not to be tempted by Rome, not to be seduced by Rome. Thus the warning, come out of her, my people. After all, Rome is drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the witness of Jesus. David de Silva says, I would suggest that John would have us subject our own social, economic, and political systems and our involvement in those systems, both as disciples and of, as collective Christian bodies, to the same scrutiny that John subjected his own and that of his congregations, and to do this on the same basis. That basis will be the scriptural revelation of God's priorities and his agenda for human community and God's commendation or censure of the practices that impede those priorities and that agenda. In other words, we as Christians have to step back and, and, and examine our, our social systems, our economic systems, and our political systems that we are involved in. 
and put them to the same scrutiny that John wanted his churches to put this, to put Rome under. Uh, are our systems of making money and prosperity, are they exploiting people? Uh, are they promoting uh, uh, um, ideologies and practices that are not acceptable? Prostitution and slavery and corruption. Uh, did Silva ask later, how do our country's economic practices, political entanglements, and ideologies look when measured up against the Israelite prophets, against Jesus' teachings and example, and against John's critique of his own imperial context? What values have we, as individual disciples and as group of disciples or churches, have we internalized, and, what, and in what directions are we pulled that run counter to the call of God to holiness and justice, to allegiance to the global family of faith, and to the setting of the kingdom of God first? That's from David De Silva's book called Unholy Allegiances. Michael Gorman suggests that Revelation 18 raises questions about how we spend the money we've earned. Like the economy judged in Revelation 18, many contemporary economies are based on lust, material and sexual, based on dominion, and based on exploitation, even human trafficking. We may live in just such an economy where more is always better and sex consistently sells, and we may inadvertently support other economies where the poor are exploited and even traded. So I know Revelation 17 and 18 are difficult. Uh, it's convoluted in many, many ways, and I skipped over part of chapter 17 that was uh, complex and, and difficult. And it's led to all kinds of various interpretations, and people have all these different understandings that, some, that 17 and 18 describe some future Roman society or Roman economy. But in reality, John is taking the, the Roman economy of his day, and he's putting it under critique. And he's saying that this Roman economy of materialism and prosperity, that this prosperity has been at the expense of the poor. It's been at the expense of those who are exploited. So regardless of our interpretation of Revelation 17 and 18 and whether it refers to something in the future or past, we have to understand the fact that John is critiquing the Roman system of his day. And that same critique is something that we must apply ourselves. Are we getting rich at the expense of others? Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.